Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. How are you? How are you? Has anybody checked in on you lately? Have you checked in on anybody? I'm sure that there are are people that uh, we need to check in on, whether it's a call or a text or, or, you know, maybe taking the time to sit down and Put pen to pad. Don't don't worry about the spelling errors. I know, I know. My listen, I don't know what to do with a semicolon, colon, ellipse. I listen. I, I spell Mississippi. I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. But it's the thought that counts. So if there's if there's someone out there that uh, you haven't connected with in a, in a while, take that time. And because I I understand that a lot of times we get so caught up in. The idea that no one's connecting with us or reaching out to us or calling us. Or, but we also have to be proactive and reach out to the people that we want in our lives. You know, the beauty of social media, everybody talks about the downside, is that you could message Kim Kardashian. You could, <laughs> you could, you could, you could, you could send a tweet to, to the president, you know, to the prime minister. There are people that you can have... Uh, pretty close to direct contact with, direct communication with uh, through social media. So, <laughs> you know, shoot for the stars, you know, uh, talk, you know, send a message to The Rock, uh, Halle Berry or whoever, who J.K. Rollins, you know, send a message to, to, to one of those people and uh, and you'd be surprised that, that they might, they might message you back. Um, but I hope you're well. I hope you're eating healthy and and going to bed at a at a at a regular time. You're not fighting sleep. You know, go 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 to sleep. Take take yo. <laughs> uh, I we have a great episode today. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, we have Zarian Newbill, who is a black trans woman. Uh, she's living in Georgia, which is where my family is, uh, and she's a life coach and activist for black trans women. Now, this episode isn't just about black trans women. This is about anyone who's transitioning and anyone who's been bullied because she shares a story about being bullied as a child and how she finally learned to, to fight back. She, we define what, what a transgender person is. We talk about what she didn't know about hormone replacement therapy, the you know, there's there's so much that you you learn before you have these therapies to to transition and uh, and how that affected her marriage. Uh, we also talk about how she paid for it, the upside of Obamacare. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't realize that uh that it that it could cover a few things. Um, and then we also talk about if you're a, a transgender person and. Uh, how do you disclose that to someone in the dating arena? So we get into that and uh, so much more. But um, the, the what wasn't included in this episode, uh, because we ran out of time, unfortunately, what she told me uh, after was that she's still deciding whether or not uh, she wants uh, to get the, get the full surgery done. You know the the bottom half, basically, um, and she 
was sharing that a lot of people uh, don't get the, a lot of trans people don't get the bottom half done. And so we're going to have her back on because I have, I have a million more. There's going to be a part two. I, I'm just going to label this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to label this episode part one because there definitely needs to be a part two. Um, and she was also uh, sharing how the, the trans population is growing, especially in Atlanta and uh, uh, in, in Georgia. If, if you're a trans person and, and you feel out of place, Georgia might be the place that, is a 2 million population, I believe, of trans people. Don't quote me on that, but I believe that's the number. And they just passed a hate crime bill. So you can't fire someone um, for uh, going through a transition. And the beautiful thing that she shared is that if you are undergoing a transition or thinking about it, to remember that the people in your life are transitioning with you also. They're also learning. They're also having to adapt. And it's, it's a beautiful sentiment that, uh, once again, I, uh, I, uh, unfortunately, we didn't get deeply into, but that's why we're going to label this part one because we definitely have to have her back uh, to share more of her story and her thoughts. She had so much to say. And uh, there's just so much in this episode, though. So you're going to enjoy it. I enjoyed it. And, uh, and we link to her uh, organization, which is Navigating Omitted Minds Over Time, or NOMO. Uh, you can check that out, and that's to help uh, for uh, black trans women. But I think it's for all women uh, transitioning, or all people transitioning, or who wants to undergo uh, a transition. So please check that out. That's linked in the show notes. Uh, and as usual, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. With yours truly, let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's uh, talk to Zarian Newbill. You're the creator, founder of Navigating Omitted Minds Over Time, N-O-M-O. Can you tell us more about that organization and why you started that? Yes. So I started NOMO back in 2016 when I started my own transition. And the reason I started that started the organization was because after I saw how a lot of uh, my trans sisters were not really getting a lot of the services and things that they need, especially support um, in their homes, Um, And with other family members and even in some of the schools, I wanted to develop a space for them to be able to come and express how they feel, how they felt. And then also um, a lot of my sisters dropped out of high school. And so a lot of them don't have high school diplomas, nor do they have GEDs. And I was fortunate enough to graduate high school number two in my class. I was fortunate to graduate college 3.85 GPA um, with my bachelor's degree in psychology. So I wanted to be able to show them that it is possible to be a trans, a black trans woman and still be able to navigate and function through this thing we call life. I appreciate you uh, sharing your journey with us because, you know, growing up, these weren't conversations that people were having. And, no. <laughs> and, and 
weren't really even aware. You know, I'm from Chicago, a major city of, and you know, you would think that that would be uh, something that even in a major city you'd be aware of. But uh, we're we're all still. It seems like we're we're relearning the 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 gender language, and so I appreciate you uh, sharing your your journey with us and starting this organization. Absolutely. When you said support at home and in school, what types of, of challenges uh, are there? I, I, I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I want to act like I know nothing at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So when I when I speak on support in the home, so more than I, I want to say more than 60 to 70 percent of uh, LGBT identifying children or teenagers um, are actually put out of their homes and they have nowhere to go, which means they can't get to school. They have no access to any type of money, resources, food, just the basic essential things. And so the support that my organization does is we've, we've partnered with several actual organizations here in Atlanta and also in my hometown, Macon, where we connect people um, that need food, if they need some type of housing, if they need uh, bus passes and, you know, um, cars and things like that so they can get to where they need to get to. If they, if they are, um, in need of any type of medical attention, we have resources that we can connect them with too. So when I speak of support, I mean the holistic person, supporting them holistically and not just, okay, just this or just that. Because at the end of the day, the support that they weren't getting from home, what happened is they'll go out here and they will result to having to do survival sex work just to survive, to eat. And so to break that cycle, I said that I wanted to be able to do something for my community so that 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 way they'll know that they are not alone. Because I tell people I am a privileged Black trans woman because I have a great job. I support myself. I can take care of myself. I don't have to ask anybody for anything. So I try to be that role model for some of the ladies and so that way they'll see a positive image because they, they're not seeing positive images of black trans women that are in power and that sit in certain places of power as well um, in jobs and owning their own businesses and uh, things like that. Now, when it comes to education, I found out that there is less than 1% of trans-identifying students that are actually enrolled in college. And that's a major issue. And the reason why is because over 80% of trans-identifying students did not finish high school. So we have a huge situation here where we have to try to navigate our trans sisters and our trans brothers to get their education. So I am actually working with partnering up with um, Elaine Lucas High School in Macon, Georgia, for any trans person that did not complete high school 
and wants to go and get their education, whether it's a GED or, or a high school diploma, and they'll be able to get that. And that'd be the first step of them taking back their, their power and being able to move forward in life. But it all goes back to being that supportive organization and, and being there and just not giving the support, just, I'm sorry, not just saying go here and then don't follow up or do anything like that because the follow-ups are extremely important as well. Can we define for myself and for the listeners sure. uh, the definition of trans? So transgender people are people who were assigned at birth, male or female, but are now living their lives as um, as a man or a woman. So like me, I was assigned male at birth. However, through hormone replacement therapy or HRT is what we call it, I am now transitioning into a female now. So we we've never I've never identified with my biological anatomy. And that's all it pretty much is. And was this something that you realized that at a very young age or was it in your teenage years? At what age did you and what were those those signs? Were you trying on like your mom's clothes? Like what were the <laughs> That's the that's that's the that's the stories that you hear a lot of times. Right. But however, for me, because I grew up in a very, very small country town, I knew at four years old that I would that I knew I didn't identify with being a boy. I knew there was something different. I just know in my mind, I was like, I am a girl. And see, I had two younger sisters. And so I would always ask them, well, why do you all have that? And I have this. <laughs> like, what is this? And so they would say, well, you're a boy and we're girls. And I would always tell them, no, I'm a girl just like you're a girl. And so this was around four, five, six years old. Be- because what I've studied and what I've researched is between those ages of four and six, that's when a child really starts to develop a sense of gender identity and expression as well. So I kind of definitely fell in between the bracket of those uh, of that spectrum. And how did your parents respond to this? I would assume uh, part of the, your you know, privilege was growing up with both parents. How did yeah. they respond to uh, that? Well, I before I transitioned, I actually would cross-dress. And so with me cross-dressing, I couldn't do it at home because my parents are in the church very heavily. They are deacons, been in the, de- been in the church for years. And so I would go to my best friend's house at the time. And I would go over there and she would do my makeup and I would put my dress and heels on and I would go go out to the clubs. And and I felt so in, I felt so normal because being a boy and having to suppress that was abnormal for me. So when my dad found my clothes and all my letters for my boyfriend and all of that, 
threw all of my stuff away. And I was away at Clark Atlanta University at the time. And I came back and it was just a complete horror story. Now, moving forward, because I suppressed I suppressed that for so long, my I suppressed that female in me for so many years. Once I turned 26, my ex-husband actually encouraged me to move forward in my transition. And so I ended up transitioning at the age of 26. I was not brave enough to express that to my parents. So what I did uh, face-to-face, so what I did was I actually wrote a letter to them. And in the letter, I pretty much broke down how I had been feeling for so many years and expressing to them that I hated, that I had to suppress my true identity for so many years And that if they ever wanted to speak to me, they would have to make the first move. And so me and my parents, we didn't talk for a few months. I want to say about three or four months. We had no communication at all. So while it was very difficult for me during that during that period of time, because my family, we are extremely we are extremely close. But taking them through that type of turmoil was already hectic because when I was 18 and me cross-dressing and then uh, people in the church actually found out that I was cross-dressing, it kind of made a whole big mess. And so now we're in a position where I'm 31 now. And so I just had the conversation with my parents about pronouns. Um, because I have to explain to any and everyone that is transitioning, make sure you understand and know that you're not the only one that is transitioning. Your family, your friends, your coworkers, any and everyone that is within your circle and that you interact with on a daily basis, they're going to transition with you. But you have to be patient and understanding that if they uh, misgender you now, not to take it personally if it wasn't intentional, but if it was intentional, then that's when you have to address it. So that journey has been extremely, has been, it's, it's still going, but we're in a place now to where they're actually using proper pronouns now. So two questions. One, sure. uh, the cost of transitioning financially, mm-hmm. I would imagine is insane. Uh, <sighs> Can you? Do you feel comfortable sharing with us? Because and the reason why I want to mention it is because uh, for for people who don't understand um, Mm -hmm. identifying as uh, another gender, and uh, I I want the listeners to have a a complete understanding, compassion for people who are undergoing such a transition, and to Mm -hmm. understand everything that they're going through to make this happen, that it's not something that uh, you just woke up the next day and it's done. This is a, oh, it's a God, journey. God. It's a transition. And it, it's, it's also, uh, I, I mean, I can't think of too many things I would put this amount of money into. So. <laughs> Let me tell you, I thank God uh, for Obama. <laughs> Let me just say that. Um, so, 
I have, so I I do have what they call Obamacare. Thank God for it, um, because it has afforded me to be able to um, get my hormones, um, and because I take hormone injections, um, I so my insurance pretty much covers my um, all of my things that I need for me in order to transition. Thank God for that. However. When it comes to your uh, your lifestyle, as far as like how you want to present, how you want your makeup and things like that done, that's when you get into the cost effectiveness of things. Because although uh, some people, and this this is why I say lifestyle, because some people are are on the more higher scale and higher end. Of wanting to, you know, wear name brand clothing, which can which can get extremely expensive. However, for some of us who aren't on that level yet, we just get we get we get what we can, and we maximize on that. So, having um, top surgery or breast or breast augmentation surgery, what we like to call it, to enhance your breast. Um, it depends. It can range from maybe four to five thousand up to seven, eight grand. Depends on what on what size and what look you're actually going for. Now, I've been I've been blessed enough <laughs> to have um, to have not have had to go undergo any type of surgery for my breast augmentation. Because my body took to the hormones extremely well, actually too well. And I'm going to kind of put you in on a little something. When I first started um, my hormones, um, they did my blood work. My doctor did my blood work. And she was like, you actually have more estrogen in your body than testosterone anyway. So she told me that my body was going to actually be happy that I'm getting a little bit more to actually enhance um, different parts of the body that um, that women um, should have, which is breast development and hips and things like that. So that's that's one part. Now, when we get into bottom surgery, two things with bottom surgery. There are people that go overseas and have it done for extra for an extremely low cost. Over, um, I believe in India and also Bangkok, it's maybe three four grand. So, but it's a risk that you take when you go overseas and you come back and then there are complications. So that means someone would have to go in and alter the work of somebody else's work, which should never, should never occur. However, here in the States, you have two options. You can, I'm sorry, three. You can get it through a grant because there are certain hospitals that are for trans women that would like to go um, undergo sexual reassignment surgery, and you can get it through a grant and they'll pay for it. There are stipulations for that, though. The second one, um, you can pay for it out of pocket yourself. Um, there's a place in Pennsylvania, I can't think of the name of the hospital, but it's 20 grand to have um, your sexual reassignment surgery. And lastly, the third way is um, Medicaid. Uh, Medicare, which I'm not sure which one, but depending on what state you're in, 
the state will pay for your sexual reassignment surgery, which was amazing to me because I was like, Lord, I need to be moving to the state that does that. <laughs> but it's a very, very tricky situation because you have, I believe you have had to live there for maybe a year or so in order to even get, um, uh, to even be approved for something like that. So those are the three ways, but it can, it can get cost effective when you getting into the surgeries. I will say that. Now, I, I believe there's also a speech therapy that you, that a lot of, uh, trans people undergo did you are you undergoing any type of speech therapy you know i have been fortunate enough not to have to not have to do that this is my regular voice this is actually the deepest my voice has ever been so when i tell people um when people ask me you know have i had any type of speech therapy or voice lessons or anything like that I tell them, no, I was like, you can go back years and you can see I've always, people used to pick on me and call me, call me Michael Jackson, because that's the type of voice I used to have. <laughs> you know how he had that very small, that soft voice yeah. when he used to speak. And so that's how my voice used to be. And around the age of 23, I noticed that um, my voice kind of took a little, took a very minute dive. And so it's just been here uh, ever since then. It hasn't changed or anything since then. You mentioned kids made fun of you and uh, said you had a Michael Jackson voice. Were you bullied at all in school? <laughs> I was bullied all the time because I, I, first of all, I came from a very country town. So I was very skinny and I had an oval shaped head with big ears. <laughs> so I looked I I already had looked very unorganized and unorthodox anyway. And so um I would say I got bullied once my once my mom moved us from our hometown Hawkinsville to Macon. Um we I went to I started third grade when we moved to Macon. And I was bullied all the way up through high school. Now, I will say my senior, I'm sorry, my junior year in high school, that's when I turned into, um, I forgive my French. I don't know if we can cuss on here or not, but. Um, let it loose. Let it loose. Okay. Um, that's when I started kicking ass and taking names everywhere. Because I got tired of being bullied. I went to a. Uh, went from public schools to being bullied to a actual private Christian school um, being bullied there. And then I went to high school, and um, which was a public high school, and it started, the bullying started again. And so I was like, Lord, I am not finna, I'm not going to let these people keep bullying me because I went, in, I went into ninth grade only weighing maybe like 75 pounds. Lightweight. Yes, very lightweight. And just think about my voice being extremely soft, and um, people uh, people would pick on me every day. Oh, they was like, oh, look at that fag or that sissy. You know, just using all of the derogatory words. Now, 
it I didn't let it bother me because I had heard it all the way up through third grade, all the way up until I started high school. And then even out in public when I was younger, um, I would hear that from people when we um, would, would go to different functions and things like that at our, you know, at our church. And we would go to visiting churches. And I mean, people would be so mean, so mean. And I, I never understood why, because I grew up in, in a country town. So I had the love of my aunt, who was a lesbian as well. Um, God rest her soul. She's no longer with us. And I had the love of my my grandmother, who who I love dearly. And so um, coming from that, that type of environment of love and just loving you and not worried about what people say to actually crossing over into a space where I was have where I where I had to learn how to fend for myself, it was rough. It was very rough. That's why now I speak out when I see something wrong. And besides fighting back, you, you know, uh, you know, knuckling up, how, how else did you, how did you, how else did you mentally cope with that? Because uh, I have so many listeners who I know who are, who are being bullied now and, yeah. and, you know, they knuckle up, but whether you talked about your aunt you talked about your grandma, uh, yeah. did you have other, uh, inner resources that did you journal that was there an outlet for you besides yeah. fighting? Yes. So my, my, my two sisters, um, are my rock. They have been my backbone, always have been my backbone. They've always spoken up for me. Even, even in high school, when me and my sister, who's a year younger than I am, she, when anybody would say anything, she would always like, listen, y'all not going to keep at the time picking going and talking about my brother. Y'all not going to keep doing that. And so she would speak up. And then I also had a few friends that came from the Christian school that I graduated from that actually came to the same school. So they were so they would speak up for me as well. And so I I had that support. And then also my best friend of 21 years, um, I wish she would be another person I could I would be I was able to go and talk to. And one of the things that she taught me is that everybody is not going to accept you and I have to be okay with that. And so once I learned that concept, I was like, I'm going to have to not be so violent and not act out the way that I need to. So that goes back to the support. Like I was saying with uh, one of the, um, factors in my in my organization is having that support there because I knew what I went through. I didn't I I didn't have, you know, very good listening ears when I was going through things like that. So um so luckily enough for me, my sisters were able to um, you know, take up for me every now and then. But you know, when you're by yourself, you don't have anybody there. So um, I, I did journal sometimes, but I, I was one of those people where I didn't want to write my feelings down. I, wanted, I was one of those people where I wanted to act, act my feelings out. So, you know. Now, now going back a little bit, you, you said yeah. that when the church found out 
uh, all hell broke loose. What now? In what way? Because that also you you uh, mentioned that uh, it, it also led to like self cutting, self harm. Can you talk to yeah. us about how the how the church affected you? Yes. So um, when I was eighteen, I went to. Um, I went to my best friend's house, got dressed, went out to the club. Now, I did not know. Um, this was the nightlife back in Macon, back in uh, 2007, 2008. And so every first Friday, all the clubs would be jumping, all the clubs would be popping downtown. So I would go downtown to the gay club, and I'm just turning up being me. But not knowing or realizing that there were church members that were that were down there going to different spots. Cause there were restaurants and things like that as well. And so it, I don't know who went back, but they went back and told one of the biggest gossipers in the church. And she went and told everybody that this person saw me down at the gay club dressed up with a black dress on and a jet black wig and heels and makeup on and all of this and all of that. And so it, when my mom and dad found out about it, it, it messed them up. They were, they were upset. They were bothered. They didn't like, it was, it got so ugly. It got so ugly to the point where I didn't even go to church for like three months. And then, um, during the time when they would go to church, my uh, sisters, they would go to church with my parents or whatever, I would cut myself. Um, I would always say things like, you know, I'm not needed here. Life would be better. Their lives would be better if I wasn't in it because I felt like I had brought shame upon my family because, you know, growing up in the church, you hear that being gay is wrong and you're going to hell and all of this and all of that. And I was like, I can't control this. This is not something that I can't control. And so going back to the church, my mom and my dad sat me down and told me that my pastor had wanted to have a conversation with me. And so I was like, okay. So when I met up with my pastor, at the time, she's not my pastor now, but at the time, um, she told me, she said, the life you are living is wrong. Someone told you who you were, and that was a lie. That is not who you are. And when she said those words to me, I just immediately got up and left. And I got in my car, and I was, I went down to... Uh, Oak Muggy River and making it runs through downtown um, Macon and I was going to just drive into the river because I, I said to myself there's no way that a person who's supposed to love God and supposed to love everybody would say something like that to me and so something triggered in me to just go and just just in my life that that day. I felt like my parents didn't understand 
obviously my pastor didn't understand. And so I was like, yeah, I'm just better off dead than me staying here and having to go through this turmoil and torture every single day of being asked, you know, well, why you feel this way? And, you know, living in a Christian home, you know, the Bible says this and the Bible says that and going to and when the times I did go to church, you know, I would sit in the back of the church, you know, and I was, you know, slip and slide out. And so the church for me was one of was one of the main reasons why I wanted I wanted to just die. And so now I advocate for pastors and ministers and anybody that's in the fivefold ministry, go get inclusive and diversity training because you have people that are in your church that are suffering and going through a hardship of trying to understand who they are and you and you not having a clear understanding about LGBTQ and gender nonconforming and non-binary people will lead them to actually following through with the suicide attempt. Like my, I, I just told my parents this year when I turned 31 that I was cutting, I was self-medicating, I was doing all kinds of unsafe things to my body because I was trying to literally leave here. I got so depressed and I got so, I was so upset. And I, I mean, I, I had so many negative emotions and so many negative thoughts in my mind to the point to where I said, I just, I just need to die, I need to leave here. Like what, what purpose do I have on this planet if I'm going to be treated like such? And what saved your life? What saved my life was my best friend. She, <laughs> I heard, I heard her words in the back of my head. It's not up to anyone to accept you, but it's up to you to love who you are and keep living. And when I, it's, it's, it was like, uh, you know, an angel or something came and just kind of popped that in my brain. And it, it laid on my heart. And I went to her house because she didn't live that far from the church. And I went to her house and I just cried. I mean, I literally cried. And so... She actually saved my life. Her words, me remembering what she told me, saved my life. Because when I tried to commit suicide, I was 20. And she told me those words when I was 18. And you and you remembered those words and, and that helped you to keep going? Yes. And to this day... That's what I tell other people that have been in the same situation and that are in the same situation of not having a listening ear and just want somebody to accept them and, and, and not only accept them, but actually understand them as well. And that's the purpose of our support group. 
is to be able to come sit down, put it out all on the table, because I tell them, you have purpose, you have destiny here. And if nobody, no, you're sent here for a purpose. And if you die, if you take your life, who's going to fulfill that purpose? And so that's what I tell people. And um, any transgender men, women, or gender nonconforming, because we do have some of those in our in our support group as well, I tell them, if not you, then who? Backtracking just a little bit. Sure. Um, you talk about your ex-husband. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure where, where to go. In, but I, I guess the question is, uh, why ex? Why did you guys end up divorcing? Okay, so let's backtrack for a minute if we can. Absolutely. So I started... So before I started my transition at 26, me and him, we were dating. We we got married and everything before my transition. But in our very first meeting, December 23rd, 2012, we were in McDonough, Georgia, at sitting at an Applebee's. I never forget it. And uh, we sat there and we talked, I know, for about four or five hours. And I expressed to him that I had wanted to transition because he saw the femininity there. And so he had asked me, say, you ever thought about transition? I said, yes, eventually I would like to start that process. And so there was a clear understanding of, of what I wanted in the beginning. Now, um, moving forward, uh, we got married and I thought everything was great and gravy. And in most relationships and marriages, you're going to have your highs and you're going to have your lows. However, what I discovered was that during the time, during during my transition, after he encouraged my transition, and I actually first started my when I first very when I first started my transition, taking the hormones and taking the spiro, which is a testosterone suppressant. He's just to having sex a lot. Me too. However, when I started all of that, my sex drive went from 10 billion to negative zero. I mean, just, just, it was over. You could, you couldn't even get me excited. Nothing, nothing could have, even, even with the kids, I'd be like, okay, this is not working for me. And so <laughs> what ends up happening was as, I progressed in my transition and my breast started developing. I started to get a little bit more hip action. And then, you know, men started complimenting and all of that. So that, that started causing issues in our, in our marriage. And so, um, I went to Florida with my best friends to get my hair done one time. And I came back from Florida and, there were hickeys all over his neck. And I was like, okay, I didn't put him there. So somebody did. And so I, I found out later on, cause he, he told me um, that it was his ex-boyfriend that had given him, uh, had brought him to our house where we were living at at the time. And you know, they had sex 
in our bed, in our house where we were living while I was away. And so like most people, when people cheat, they think people, when people think you're cheating and you're not cheating, it's because they're cheating. And that, and that was, that was our scenario. However, added on top of that with me transitioning and him not being physically attracted to me anymore, didn't make it any better. And so um, I discovered through text messages um, that he had been talking to other men. And of course, he lied about it. And I was just at a point where I was just done. I was like, I am not going to put myself through this. So I put on the table. I said, listen, you know, I want a divorce because he had threatened me with divorce twice already. And I told him, I would rather us divorce being friends and walking away being friends versus us being enemies. And so there were so many um, variables that that popped up in our, sep- in, in our during our separation period because I had moved out, got my own place with uh, with a roommate. Um, we were in a bankruptcy. And there were just so many things that was going on at the time. And after we, um, after our bankruptcy fell through due to lack of payment on his end, they, it just, it just got so crazy. And so at that point, he, we weren't divorced, we were separated. And I was like, I have to divorce this man because we, we couldn't even sit in the attorney's office together without arguing and wanting to fight each other. It had got so bad. And like I tell people all the time, you know, yes, I went on two or three dates when, when I wasn't getting the attention from my husband because I know two wrongs don't make a right. But um, I felt like I, I did what I felt necessary for me at the time because he was out doing what he wanted to do and coming home at two and three and four in the morning when he wanted to. And then when I go out on a date, you know, I'm a hoe, I'm a slut, all those things. So eventually um, he ended up getting sick and I went to the hospital with him because he called me and was like, listen, I had to put you down as emergency contact because legally we're still married. I said, okay. And so I went back. Um, I went to the hospital, sat up there with him for the entire week. And just to make sure he was okay, because he was in really bad shape. And so once he got better, we had discussed working it out. So like a fool, <laughs> went back for a whole month and saw no changes. I was like, this is not going to work. And so I ended up moving out. And then a year after that, I went on and filed for divorce. Wow, that I appreciate you sharing that journey with us yeah. uh, because you know uh, relationships are the hardest part as as you've discussed and as you've shared and so many mm-hmm. other past guests have shared in terms of goes back to what you said earlier when you're transitioning other people are transitioning with Absolutely. you and mm-hmm. it's it's hard to anticipate all the obstacles roadblocks and 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 changes during that transition that's gonna occur. Because, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you probably didn't know that you're, it would affect your sex drive in such a way because it, it, everybody takes to the hormones differently. 
Absolutely. But you know what's crazy though? I well, it's not crazy. What's what's eye-opening is that I invited him to come to every doctor's appointment. I invited him to come to every therapy session with me because I wanted him to go through go through this with me. However, when he refused to come, I I that the light bulb should have went off for me then. But when you're when you're in a marriage, you know you you try to do you try to do what's best for the marriage. And so even going through, um, we did a we did a mock therapy session with um, with his friend. Um, we're no longer friends because she decided to be his friend and not be my friend. Um, we did a mock therapy session, and we some things came out in that in that session as well that that I didn't know that he was holding in as well. So. I was like, how in the world am I supposed to navigate through this by myself? If we're supposed to be a team, we're supposed to be one. And so not only were my mom and dad not talking to me, now I had the person that I was in love with not validating me either at this point in time. So it got really, it was very stressful and so I was diagnosed with PTSD due to past things that happened to me on top of the things that I was going through in my marriage. And I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. So how are you uh, managing those emotions now at the age of 31? Do you have a daily oh, routine? <laughs> so what I do, I what I, what I do for me is I love my candles. I do a lot of meditating. I am what uh, uh, literal people say I, I'm an omniist. So I, I research our religions for truth. And so I pull those truths. And so I give myself that space to, um, to kind of embrace that. So if I do feel an anxiety attack coming on, or I feel myself overly excited about something, that's when I know I'm getting ready to go into full heightened anxiety. Or if I find myself um, depressed, I just go, I light my candles, I turn on my African music, my African drums music, and I just dance here. You know, I speak to whatever I'm feeling, whether it's fear, whether it's hurt, whether it's pain, and I give it, I give it a voice so I know exactly and it knows exactly what I'm talking about and who I'm talking to. So that way it knows that I see you. I know I'm getting ready to experience you. And so I use all of that um, to actually make that dissipate from my space and from my environment. To wrap up, uh, you also not only do you have the NOMO organization, you also life coach to people who yeah. are transitioning. Can you talk to us about what people are struggling with and, and what kind of services that, that you uh, you provide for people? So, yes. Yeah, so my life coaching business has been my inspiration and it, and it is for um, Black trans women. And so a lot of my trans sisters are dealing with loneliness. A lot of our sisters are dealing with um, acute depression. They feel 
especially in this heightened time of, of, of all of the murders that's going on right now, a lot of our, a lot of our sisters are scared to date. A lot of our sisters are scared to even disclose that they're even trans. And so there is such a fear that's going on right there. So what I do is I, I assist them with, with coaching them through all of the fear and, and the heightened anxiety that, that they may be going through and have. And so how we do that is we just put together a whole map. I call it the bumblebee map or the honey, the honey beehive of fear. And I tell them, put all of your fears in this hive and let's address it one thing at a time. And so while I have seen some progress with some of my sisters, there are others that still are are dealing with um, that fear of being murdered because everyone wants to be loved. And so a lot of the girls have just accepted anything. And so it's like we I have to explain to them, listen, you are more than just your body. You can't allow a man to validate who you are. You have to do that for yourself. And so just coaching them through that, it's, it's, just, it's just been really hard because a lot of because um, I just had um, a good sister, um, Kimmy, here in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, was sh- was uh, was shot and murdered. And this was about three weeks ago. And so even I'm having to coach myself through um, through that pain because I've lost several sisters through gun violence here in Georgia. Now, how do you coach someone through disclosing to someone who is uh, straight, I guess is the, the word? Mm-hmm. Uh, that they are trans, if if they, yeah. uh, right? How how do uh, how do you coach them through that discussion? So a lot of so a lot of the sisters are on dating apps. That just seems to be the hot thing since they shut down Backpage and a lot of those other um, 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 uh, internet things that was that was going on at the time. They shut all those down. So now a lot of my sisters are using a lot of the dating apps now, and so like I express to them. When I was on a dating app, one of my first sentences was, I am a trans woman. If you cannot handle that, please do not inbox me because I value my life. And so I tell them that's what I do. However, when we're out in public and a guy may see us or something like that and may want to approach us, I tell them if they ask for your number, true indeed, you, I, I tell them, listen, Share, share your number with them if you want to. If not, you can even give them your email address and you all can email. And I tell them so that you're not there in their face for my sister's safety. Have that conversation with them over the phone and let them know. Because, see, this way they don't know where you live. They only have they only may have your number and or your email address. And so I tell them it's a safety reason why you don't disclose in person because we don't know a person's alternative motives because um, one of our sisters, I believe it was, um, I'm not sure of the state shoot, but she disclosed that she was trans and the guy still murdered her. And so we have to, so it's like, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. But I tell them we have to be, we have to, have to use judgment, good judgment when we're when we're getting ready to disclose. I usually say say it within the first few days of you all are communicating and talking and give him the option to say yes, 
or no, if he wants to continue on with you. And I also tell them, make sure they're aware that if he says, yes, I want to, um, I want to keep talking to you, ask them, have they ever experienced a trans woman? Have they ever dated a trans woman? And that, let them give you some form of history so that way you can say, yeah, yeah, or no, if you want to pursue this this person or not. But I do encourage my trans sisters to go on apps that are trans friendly so that way they won't have such an issue. And even with that, a lot of the apps need better vetting systems because there are still people on these trans apps that are for trans women and some trans men. And there are still men, uh, there are still men that are seeking out a trans woman to murder. Zarian, so I, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, we we do have to cut this shorter than I wanted it to be. I I have so many more questions. We're gonna have you back on definitely. Absolutely. Uh, and the last question I want to ask, and I ask yeah. this of all my guests, because mm-hmm. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Mm-hmm. Be- before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? What I would say to that person before you kill yourself. I need you to go back to a point in time when you were really happy. Go back to that space and fill yourself up with that light, that happiness, that joy, that that feeling of enlightenment and empowerment and inspiration that you felt. And fill yourself up with that in your mind and in your heart. And think about how valuable, how much more valuable you will be to another person to save that person's life. Because you are needed. You are. You have purpose. You have destiny that you have got to fulfill. And no one is going to do that but you. Zarian Newbill, please tell people where they can find you. You can find me on Facebook at Zarian Newbill, and you can find me on Instagram at Queen Amunet. That's Q-U-E-E-N-A-M-U-N-E-T. Also, you can go to my uh, organization, www.nomoorganization.org, and also Instagram as well, nomo underscore org. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. For you calling 1-800-SUICIDE or 273-TALK or many of the other numbers listed in every single show notes. Uh, there are international numbers linked in there also. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Zarian. Absolutely. Thank you.